For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is The Word of Faith. This is part three, Romans chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. In the time that we've spent over the last several weeks in this passage together, Paul has been demonstrating that God's redemptive purpose to justify sinners through the means of faith in his Son, that plan, that purpose was revealed in the text of the Old Testament. In asserting that fact, Paul has now drawn a clear distinction between two groups of people in our text. Lost, apostate, unbelieving Israel and those like them who have placed their faith in their own ability to earn a righteousness of their own through obedience to the law. And on the other side, elect Jews and elect Gentiles who have come to an acknowledgement of their sin through the law. And they've turned and placed their faith in Jesus Christ for the gift of righteousness that only comes from God through faith in him. Two groups of people on either side of a strict divide. Those who would use the law as a means to justify themselves, that they themselves are righteous, those who would trust in their own merit, and those who would abandon all hope in themselves to place their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Those who would trust in Christ for his righteousness given or imputed as a gift of God's grace through faith. Even from the words of Moses written in the book of the law, that principle is clear. By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in him. Only those who put repentant faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. God has laid a stone in Zion. He's laid a true stone, a tried stone, a tested stone, a stone, a foundation in Zion on which our hope, our assurance of salvation may be built. It is a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, a rock of refuge. Nevertheless, for unbelieving apostate Israel, he has become a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They refuse to submit themselves to that righteousness which only comes from God through Jesus Christ. And in the words of Jesus Christ, whoever falls on that stone will be broken. And those upon whom it falls will be, grind, will be ground to powder. So then, in our text, in an effort to persuade the Jews, his Jewish countrymen whom Paul loves, Paul turns to the Old Testament scriptures to make his case from the writings of Moses. In particular, he turns to the text of Deuteronomy 30. And from the basis of their own misunderstanding, their misinterpretation of that text represented in the Jerusalem Targum, Paul explains the gospel. In Romans chapter 10, verse 6, Paul refers to the word of the gospel as the righteousness of faith. And he personifies that word. The righteousness of faith speaks in this way. In Romans chapter 10, verse 7, Paul refers to the gospel of our salvation as the word of faith which we preach. And in both cases, that word of faith, that word of the gospel, has been brought near to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is near to you, in your mouth and in your heart. So do not say in your heart, 
Do not think to yourself for one minute that this gospel, this good principle of faith is too hard for you to understand, that it's too far off or too mysterious. Do not think to yourself that you would need some great prophet like Moses to ascend into the heavens to bring it down to you so that you could understand it and do it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 12. One greater than Moses has already come. He has been sent from heaven. Hear him. Do not allow yourself to think for one minute that you need some great prophet like Jonah to descend into the abyss and to drag it up for you so that you could understand it and do it. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 13. One greater than Jonah has already come, and he has been raised from the dead. Hear him. Jesus said to the Jews, you, see, you search the scriptures, and they search the scriptures of the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, in those scriptures, they think that they have eternal life. But the Lord Jesus Christ says, those scriptures speak of me. These are they which testify of me. The Old Testament witnesses to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Moses then says, Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 30, the righteousness of faith, that word of the gospel, speaks in this way. You don't need to ascend into heaven to drag the word down. You don't need to descend into the abyss to drag the word up. Jesus Christ has come down from heaven. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. What did Moses himself say? Verse 8. The word is near you. In your mouth... And in your heart, that word of faith which we preach, such that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now it's here, verse 9, that Paul refers to the words of Moses regarding that word of faith in our heart and in our mouth. And Paul, in this, transitions from defining or describing salvation merely in terms or strictly in terms of righteousness and justification. And now Paul transitions and begins to speak of those gospel realities that accompany justification and salvation. Those gospel realities that show up, if you will, in the practical experience of the believer, namely faith and confession. If we confess with our mouth, that word means to acknowledge it means to testify openly, testify publicly, if you will. If we believe in our heart, that word heart understood as our inner being. Heart, not simply the way that we think about it today, not simply the seed of someone's emotions. What does Paul mean when he refers to that word heart? If we believe in our heart, heart is understood to be the seed of our thoughts, the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart, right? Heart is the seed of our thoughts. Heart is the seed of our beliefs. Heart is the seed of our values, our convictions. Heart is the seed of our conscience, our knowledge of right and wrong, if you will. The seed of our hopes, the seed of our affections, our desires, our imaginations. Heart is understood to be the seed of our will, the seed of our volition, the seed of our intents, the seed of our aims, our ambitions, and our emotions. Heart, conceived of in the New Testament, is the seat of our inner being, the seat of the person. If we confess with our mouth, if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Paul says you will be saved. How so, Paul? How's that work out? Because, verse 10 with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So we pick up our text now in verse 10. 
Paul begins verse 10 by clarifying the proper relationship between faith and confession. Notice with me. Rather than maintaining the order that Moses used, it is near you in your mouth and in your heart, Paul puts them, faith and confession, in their logical relationship to one another. Faith in the heart precedes confession or the testimony of our lips. Confession without faith is a lie. Confession without faith is taking the Lord's name in vain. But faith without confession is also a lie. It's called hypocrisy. Faith without confession is hypocrisy. We'll talk about that more as we work through our text this morning. Now, Paul places them in their proper relationship to one another. Faith precedes confession. Verse 10. For, or because, because, with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. The Lord, from Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The Lord says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. An evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Out of that spring does not pour forth good and evil, bitterness and good. Out of the good treasure of a man's heart comes forth good. Out of the evil of a man's heart proceeds or brings forth evil. Paul is essentially echoing the words of Jesus Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. In this case, the confession of your lips, the confession of your mouth, the testimony of your mouth reveals the condition of your heart. The confession of the Lord Jesus Christ reveals the condition of your heart. Now, as Paul places them in their logical relationship to one another, I want you to notice with me the parallels that he makes in the structure of the text. This is very interesting. Notice the parallels. Following Moses, Paul connects heart and mouth from Deuteronomy 30. He connects heart and mouth. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. He connects heart and mouth. Paul then connects believing, or faith in the heart, and confession, the testimony of your mouth. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, one confesses unto salvation. You see the connection between the two. And then lastly, Paul connects righteousness with salvation. With the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Now first, in the first of those connections, consider the parallel in verse 10 between righteousness and salvation. With this connection, Paul reminds us of the theme of our letter, the theme that was introduced to us all the way back in chapter 1. Look at Romans chapter 1. And look there at verse 16. He connects righteousness and salvation and reminds us of the theme of the letter, this letter to the church at Rome. Verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because the gospel of Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now think with me. What is it about the gospel that gives it the power to save? What is it about the gospel that makes it efficacious to the salvation of sinners? What makes it efficacious to the salvation of sinners is God's justifying righteousness that he gives as a a grace through means of faith, that he gives as a gift to sinners. For, verse 17, 
in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel is the power of God to salvation because in the gospel, God imputes a saving righteousness to the one who places faith in Jesus Christ. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. Paul reminds us of the theme of our letter. It's on the basis of that justifying righteousness, that saving righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ himself, that the sinner is declared righteous and justified in the sight of God. It's on the basis of that justified status that the one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is then treated accordingly. He's treated as just. He's treated as righteous. United to Jesus Christ through faith, he is treated as though he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And he's saved eternally from his sin to the praise of the glory of God's grace. Righteousness leads to salvation. Do you see the connection? Second, Back in Romans chapter 10, consider Paul's connection in chapter 10, verse 10, between faith and confession. This connection between faith and confession essentially deals with how that righteousness is accounted to saving effect. How is it attributed? How is it given? How is that saving or justifying righteousness credited or imputed to the sinner? And from the perspective of the sinner, in the experience of the sinner, with the heart, he believes unto righteousness. Then with the mouth, he confesses Christ to salvation. So notice the connection between the two. What is Paul pointing at? We know together already by this point, having gone through the text of Romans to chapter 10, we know by this point that a saving righteousness is not going to be credited on the basis of our confession. We know that, don't we? Saving righteousness is not credited or imputed on the basis of our obedience, on the basis of our works, on the basis of our deeds. That justifying righteousness is not given on the basis of our works. For by the deeds of the law, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You have been saved by grace, by the grace of God, through the instrumentality of a gifted faith. And that salvation, which is by grace through faith, is not of your own doing. That salvation by grace through faith is all of it the gift of God. It is not of works so that you have nothing about which you may boast. You have nothing to boast about. For example... Baptism is a good work, isn't it? Yeah, we're commanded to be baptized. Believers are commanded to be baptized. Believers are commanded to be baptized. <laughs> we would consider baptism a good work. We would, we would consider baptism a work of righteousness. The Bible describes baptism as a work of righteousness. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Salvation is not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. According to Christ's righteousness, we've been saved. Asking Jesus into your heart is a work. And it's an entirely unbiblical work at that. It's nowhere on the pages of Scripture. Asking Jesus Christ into your heart in that way, believing that you're saved through that, is a work. Decisionism, which is what Arminianism leads you to do, that easy believism, what they lead you to do, making a decision to receive Christ, that decisionism turns faith 
into a work. Sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church are works. You have done something to get grace, which no longer makes it grace. <laughs> You've done something that others have not done. You've done something about which you may boast. I made the decision. I walked the aisle. I said that prayer. I did those things. You turn faith into a work. You see, we're not saved by works of righteousness, but by his mercy. Imagining that a sinner can be justified on the basis of any work is the error of the Jews. It's the error of all false religion. Romans chapter 9, verse 31. Israel sought a righteousness for themselves through their works, and they did not obtain it. So we know, we know, they were not saved through any work of our own. We also know that the Bible does not contradict itself. So what does Paul mean then by connecting faith in the heart with confession from the mouth? And specifically, on what basis is Paul connecting confession in verse 10 with salvation? First, we know that faith itself, faith itself is not meritorious. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift from God, Ephesians chapter 2. Abraham simply believed God, and it was credited to him. It was accounted to him for righteousness. That's Romans chapter 4. And we know from Deuteronomy 30, other texts that we've looked at in the context of Romans 10, we know that God circumcised Abraham's heart to believe. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it's because God has circumcised your heart so that you may believe. God causes us to be born again, and it's from that new birth that we put faith in Jesus Christ. Second, we know that confession is not meritorious either. Confession is not a work that earns you salvation. Paul has established the right relationship between faith and confession in verse 10. Testifying to the Lordship of Jesus Christ is not a meritorious work. Testifying or confession is a fruit of faith. That good confession flows from faith as a fruit of faith. Confession is a necessary expression of genuine faith. Someone might say, well, in order to be saved, you've got to pray that prayer. Prayer is not a work that earns you salvation. Prayer is an expression of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as much as prayer is an expression of genuine faith, that prayer is a fruit of genuine faith. Do you see? But only if it's a fruit of genuine faith. That good confession that Paul speaks of in verse 10, that good confession flows from faith as a fruit. Confession, the testimony of Jesus Christ on our mouth, on our lips, on our conversation, is a necessary expression of genuine faith. Why? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So then how do we understand Paul's statement in verse 10? Well, back to those connections in our text. Righteousness and salvation are connected. We are justified through the imputation of Christ's righteousness and we are eternally saved. Then faith and, con and confession are connected. Genuine faith is the means through which that righteousness is given to the believer. It's not a work. And that faith produces the outward expression of fruit. Noted here by Paul as confession. Those are not meritorious. And, and listen, Paul is so careful to avoid the idea that these things are meritorious that he places those verbs, believe and confess, 
in the passive voice. Literally, as though the person himself wasn't doing the action. Paul literally says there in verse 10, with the heart, it is believed. And with the mouth, it is acknowledged. Paul places them in the passive. Those are not works that are meritorious. They don't earn you salvation. That's how Paul connects faith and confession. Lastly, heart and mouth are connected. In the words of Dr. Murray, heart is the organ or the faculty of faith. And mouth is the organ of confession. For the believer, the word, that word of faith which we preach, the gospel, is in your mouth and in your heart. What is Paul speaking of? Paul's speaking of an inward reality, an inward operation of faith, and an outward manifestation. Both, notice in the text, both are necessary. In verse 9, both are necessary, both point to salvation. Paul refers to representative content for both of those, both belief in the heart and confession in the mouth. Paul refers to representative content or representative subjects for both in verse 9. The representative subject for faith is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a summary, if you will, of the, of the Christian faith. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Believe upon Jesus Christ and be saved. You see? The representative subject of its outward expression is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, such that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, that representative content of our faith you will be saved. Those fruits, believing in your heart that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, confession, outward confession, in your conversation and in your conduct, that Jesus Christ is Lord, those fruits are an indication of the root. It's an indication of an inward reality. It's an indication that you will be saved because you possess genuine faith. Make sense? If that inward faith is genuine, let me say it this way. If that in, inward faith is genuine, if that inward faith is true, such that it bears the outward expression of fruit, then it is also true that the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been imputed to you. God has justified you on the basis of that righteousness, not your own, and you will be eternally saved. Make sense? Those whom he justified, these he also glorified. From Romans 8, there is no one who can bring a charge against you. It is God who has justified you. There is no one who can condemn you. Christ has died in your place. And furthermore, he has also risen and sits at the right hand of God, always living to make intercession for us. No one and nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what is Paul doing? Again, Paul is pointing us away from our own works. Paul is pointing us away from our own performance as a means to justification. And Paul is pointing us to faith in Jesus Christ. He refers to a faith that produces fruit. And we began to speak about this last week. Notice in verse 10, when Paul speaks now of how that saving righteousness is accounted with that kind of faith, okay, he doesn't speak of that kind of faith in vague or uncertain terms. That kind of faith is not 
indefinable. It's not Disney faith. Just believe. Like, believe in what? Believe in how? how? Like, what? It's not nebulous faith. Paul speaks of faith in particular terms that distinguish it from mere intellectual assent. That's the point that we need to clarify. For example, he speaks about faith in terms that distinguish it from the belief of demons. The demons believe and they tremble. James chapter 2, verse 19. So what distinguishes a justifying faith from the faith of demons, from the belief of demons? Paul speaks about faith in terms that distinguish it from the spurious faith of Israel. The Israelites believed in God. They heard his voice. They saw his works. But Paul refers to their corpses lying in the wilderness. God swearing in his wrath they would never enter his rest. So what distinguishes genuine justifying faith from the damning counterfeit faith of Israel? Frankly, Paul speaks of faith in a way that prevents us from thinking that just all any old faith will do. He prevents us from thinking in those terms. Not all faith is evangelical faith. Not all faith is justifying faith. And a genuine, saving, justifying faith is biblically defined. Think through this with me. Again, verse 10. Paul speaks of faith in terms of inward operation and outward manifestation. For, verse 10, with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, that's inward operation, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation, that is outward manifestation. The faith described in verse 10 is a faith that, resi that resides not merely with the mind. You heard neither Moses nor Paul say, with the mind, one believes unto righteousness. Paul didn't say that. If you accept these things as true, then you will be saved. Paul doesn't say that. There is absolutely, there is certainly a content to our faith that we must know, that you must believe. And if you don't believe those things, if you don't believe that content to our faith, then you, then you can't be saved. You cannot be a Christian. Oftentimes, it's denying that content of our faith later that proves you were never a Christian to begin with. If you say you're a Christian, you leave five, 10 years in your Christian life and then deny that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the Bible says you cannot be saved. So often it's a denial of that content of our faith later that proves we were never a Christian. There are saving truths that we must know. There is a content to our faith. But Paul does not say, with the mind one believes under righteousness. Or if we agree with this set of facts, then we will be saved. Faith doesn't stop with what we know. Don't be deceived by this. Faith, biblical faith, the faith that justifies as it were, the faith used as a means to our justification is not a faith that terminates upon what you know. It doesn't stop there. That faith will find expression in your life. Faith doesn't stop with what we know. That knowledge has to make its way from your head into your heart. And that, that, that faith in your heart will find expression in your words, in your deeds, in your obedience to his commands. That's why James says, faith without works is dead. Faith without works is spurious. Faith without fruits is a counterfeit faith. It's what James is saying. The genuine justifying faith of which Paul speaks is a faith that is biblically characterized or biblically defined by an inward operation. 
And it's a faith that is biblically characterized or biblically defined by outward evidences or outward fruits. You notice I say those things are biblically defined because many will say, I have faith and then define it in their own way. Well, I have faith. I had this warm, like molasses feeling that came over my whole body when I believed upon you and the light shone and I heard angels singing and I know that I'm saved. That faith is going to be biblically defined <laughs> and it's going to have biblical fruits associated with it. Many, many, many say they believe these things to be true. Many say they believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. They believe that he was buried. They believe that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. They believe that he was seen by Cephas, by Peter, by 500 at one time, many of whom are still alive at the time that Paul is writing that. They believe these things to be true. They say they believe the content of our faith. Many simply believe what they have been taught. And if you ask them to work through anything in the Bible, they really can't do that. I, when the Lord saved me, I was biblically illiterate after having spent my entire life in church. Biblically illiterate. They believe simply what they've been taught, what they've been spoon-fed. They believe what sounds right to them. If they believe it, then it must be true. And if they don't believe it, then it must be false. <laughs> Instead of getting truth and believing it, or acknowledging it as falsehood from the Bible and not believing it, if they believe it, then it's true. And they'll argue with you about it. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible clearly says that. They won't let the Bible, they won't let anybody else convince them otherwise. Many people are like, I was like that. I was all my life in church. So I would go to a church if that guy doing the talking agreed with me. <laughs> like, um, that's not a way to think about church. <laughs> We're all in the position of learner. You need to be here to learn and you need to be here teachable, humble, not to me, to the Bible. We're talking about what the Bible says. So submit yourselves to the word of God and stop arguing with it. You are a learner, so act like a learner. Do you see? <laughs> Many say they believe these things to be true or they believe simply what they want to believe. They believe things that they think are true. But what they think they know does not profit them. It doesn't profit them. Theirs, at best, is an intellectual kind of faith. It has not taken root in the heart. That's what we're talking about. It has to take root in the heart. And if it hasn't taken root in the heart, it will not bear fruit in the life. The one who possesses the particular kind of faith to which Paul is referring, Paul says, will never be put to shame. Verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. It's here in verse 11 that Paul again refers to the text of Isaiah 28. And it's interesting how Paul comes back to this text now again in verse 11. Paul first quoted this text from Isaiah 28 in Romans chapter 9, verse 33. Look at that text there. Romans chapter 9, verse 33. Paul is quoting Isaiah 28, 16. And Paul's quoting that text with reference to the shame that is brought upon the Jews in refusing to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. That text is brought to bear to put them to shame for rejecting their Messiah. 
Now, in verse 11, Paul comes back again and he quotes that very same text to set the shame of the Jews who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ in contrast. Israel has rejected their Messiah, but to anyone, to anyone who will place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike, whoever believes upon him will never be put to shame. That kind of faith will not be disappointed. That kind of faith is the means through which God pours out all of the riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It's the means, it's through the means of that kind of faith that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in him. And there is no distinction. There is no distinction between men in terms of their sinful condition. There is no distinction between men in terms of their need. And so there is no distinction between them in, their, in the free offer of the gospel. Romans chapter 3, verse 22, For there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so there is no distinction made in God's free offer of the gospel. Verse 12, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jews and Greeks stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. All are equally in need of saving grace. All are equally in need of a justifying righteousness that we do not have in and of ourselves. Men make all kinds of distinctions between and amongst themselves. In our day, in our day, men are constantly drawing attention to distinctions between us. That, brothers and sisters, has leached itself into the, the modern professing church where those kinds of distinctions between people are being made. Constantly, men are constantly feeding those worldly distinctions. Constantly, and in the name of justice, constantly fueling and feeding worldly, unbiblical distinctions. And while sinful men focus their attention on outward appearance, God looks on the heart and he says, there is no distinction. God is no respecter of persons. The same Lord is Lord over all. There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So then all people then, all people without distinction are called to the gospel, are called to turn from their sin, to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to be saved. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. <laughs> the one who turns from sin one who puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ will find him rich in grace, will find him rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in compassion, rich in his inheritance given to the saints, ready and willing to embrace the leper that comes to him in faith with all the fullness and all the blessing that the gospel offers in union with Jesus Christ, with all of that richness, God is willing to extend his hand and take the hand of the leper. You're that leper. I'm that leper. And Jesus Christ extended that hand to me, extended that hand to you in the gospel. And God was gracious to cause you to be born again, to give you his spirit, to author within you faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you were justified through an imputed righteousness, not your own works, but his works saved you. Do you see? God is ready and willing. Jesus Christ, ready and willing. Spirit, ready and willing to do that work in the heart of the sinner who turns to Christ in faith.
Paul now again turns to the testimony of the Old Testament in verse 13. And he does so in verse 13 with a quote from Joel chapter 2. And I want you to turn there with me. Hang in there with me. Joel chapter 2. In Joel chapter 2, the prophet Joel is addressing the southern kingdom of Judah early on after the southern kingdom of Judah faces a devastating locust swarm. The locust swarm was sent as judgment against Judah for her sin, and the locust swarm was also sent as a typological picture of an impending judgment that would come upon Judah by the Babylonians. Uh, Later, it was a picture of what that Babylonian army was going to look like as Judah was conquered and sent into exile. So this is judgment, the judgment of God. Joel, Joel, means Yahweh is God. That's where his name comes from. Yahweh is God. And Yahweh, through the prophet Joel, is calling the people of God to turn to him, turn to him in faith. Look at verse 12. Now therefore says the Lord, Lord says, turn to me with all your heart. This is a heart religion, amen? Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. He relents from doing harm. He is great in mercy, rich in mercy. And who knows? Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Imagine after that locust swarm ate everything, no grain thing left, and God promises them grain for an offering, grain for their worship, drink offering for their worship. It's in this context that God promises a great restoration to God's people. From our reading of the Old Testament, we know through our trek in Romans 10 so far, we know that this promised restoration is the promised blessing that God will pour out on his new covenant people in the days of the Messiah. This is a messianic promise of restoration. Verse 25, verse 25. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. And verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be put to shame. It's the promise of God. That's the quote of Paul in Romans 10. Then you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is no other, and my people shall never be put to shame. Verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. What are those days? Those are the last days. Those are the days of this age. Those are the days of Messiah. Peter quotes this passage in Acts 2 at Pentecost. He quotes this passage as fulfilled in the events of Pentecost after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those turning to Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit are prophesying. And Peter says, this is what the prophet Joel was talking about. It's a prophecy of this age, this end of the age that's coming. It's a prophecy of our age. Verse 30, and I will show wonders in the heavens, in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
When does our age end? And when does the age to come, when is the age to come ushered in at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? These cosmic disturbances in the heavens. And it shall come to pass, Joel speaks of our age, the encompassing what our age comprises between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the second. Joel says it shall come to pass in that time that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You recognize Paul's quote. That's fulfilled in our time. We live in the age in which whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Whoever calls upon the name of Yahweh. That's what Joel says in Joel chapter 2. Whoever calls upon the name of Yahweh shall be saved. And just as there is no distinction made between Jew and Greek in the free offer of the gospel, there is no distinction no distinction that Paul makes here between Yahweh and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul unflinchingly quotes a text wherein whoever turns to Yahweh will be saved, and he employs that text without qualification as applying to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Do you see? God incarnate. Now notice again the careful wording, the careful wording in verse 32, that even in Joel, that preserves a right relationship between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. You cannot escape the reality of it in the Bible. At the beginning of verse 32, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And at the end, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. The Lord calls and save those, saves those who will be saved. That word of the gospel is not too far off. It's not too lofty. It's not too inaccessible, not too transcendent. It's not too mysterious for you. That word of faith has been brought near to you in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, such that whoever, without distinction, whoever calls upon him in faith shall be saved. The Lord makes no distinction. He freely offers the gospel to you right now. He makes no distinction. He offers the gospel to you right now. If you forsake living life for yourself. And if you turn to him in repentant faith, you will find him rich in mercy, abounding in grace, ready and willing and mighty to save. And you will, if you turn to him in repentance and faith, you will find the full, full forgiveness of your sins, of all your sins. You will receive the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby through his righteousness credited to you, you will be declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. You'll be justified in his sight and you'll become a child of God, a partaker of the promised inheritance with the saints in the light. That is the promise of the gospel, amen? Amen. For all who call upon him, they will find him rich in mercy. Call upon him and be saved. All praise, honor, and glory to the one who saves us by his grace. Pray with me. Father in heaven, all praise, honor, and glory to you the one who saves us entirely by his grace through the person and work of, our, of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the power of your spirit. We praise you and thank you for this word of the gospel. We praise you and thank you for the clarity with which your, your word discloses this gracious provision for our sin. We praise you and thank you for the clarity with which your word discloses and reveals the person and work of Jesus Christ for sinners. And I pray that by your spirit, you would call that remnant to yourself out of fallen humanity call elect Jew and elect Gentile to yourself 
would cause them to be born again. You would call them with an efficacious call. You would author faith within them. They would turn to Jesus Christ in faith. They would believe upon him and would call with the confession of their mouths. They would call upon him as Lord. That would lead to their everlasting salvation. May it be to the praise of your grace. May it be to the praise of your great name. May it be to the exaltation of our Lord Jesus Christ in eternity. It's in his name we pray all these things. Amen. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.